So it's uh, good to be here on Mother's Day. It's also good to head back into our sermon series, Firefall. In this series, we are taking a look at the role of the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What does He do? What role does He play in the life of a Christian? And so these are the answers we're seeking, or the questions we're seeking answers for in the sermon series. And we're doing that by looking at the book of Acts. Because the, act, the book of Acts is really the acts of the Holy Spirit. And so, I want to read a scripture passage to you today from Acts chapter 2. It's where we're going to be camped out. But let me fill you in with what's going on in this passage so that you know when I read it what's happening. So Jesus, he has been crucified. Um, he's been buried. But he has been raised from the dead. And he's ascended to the right hand of God the Father. And what has happened here in the book of Acts is there's 120 followers of Jesus left. Only 120 followers. And they're in a room. And what happens to them is what Jesus promised would happen. The Holy Spirit falls on them. And it looks like there's flames of fire above their head as the Holy Spirit comes down on these 120 people. And this is the beginning of the church. This is the beginning of the Christian movement that went on to spread throughout the entire world and now is more than 4 billion people strong. This is the beginning. It started with these 120 followers of Jesus. And what happened after the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus' followers, they go outside of the room they were in and they start talking about Jesus being the Messiah, the chosen, special, anointed King of God. And as they're talking and proclaiming the praises of God in Jesus Christ, there's people from all over the known world at that time, Jews from everywhere, because there was a festival in Jerusalem. And this amazing thing happens is these people that are gathered there, they hear... The message about Jesus being preached in their native language. And so they're thinking that Jesus' followers are drunk. That they must have had too much wine. But Peter, in response to this concern, it was only 9 o'clock in the morning. So you would have to, I mean, most people aren't drinking at 9 in the morning, right? I hope not. So... Peter responds to the audiences like, what is going on with these words? Let me read them to you. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, 
that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that out of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Then Jesus God, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God made this Jesus, whom you crucify, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Woo! That's a lot, isn't it? Now what I want to hone in on with you this morning is that verse that says that as Peter was addressing this audience that was wondering what was going on, um, he says that the audience was cut to the heart. You see, the Holy Spirit, what it does is it cuts men and women to the heart. That's what it does. When the message about Jesus is being preached, it cuts people to the heart. Some of you are going to be cut to the heart today. Now check this out. What does the Holy Spirit do when it's cutting a person to the heart? It convicts them of three things. Of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. How about that for a Mother's Day sermon? <laughs> sin, righteousness, and judgment. Hey, we're going to do it, hopefully in 20 minutes. This is exactly what Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do. In John 16, 7 through 11, this was before Jesus died. This is what he told his 12 followers. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And then look at this. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So, the big idea that I want you to latch on to is this, when the truth regarding Jesus is shared, the Holy Spirit cuts people to the heart by convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Let's look at that first part. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. There's a lot of ways that you can talk about sin, um, but do you know what the greatest sin is that you could ever commit? What's the greatest sin that you could ever commit? This is what it is. There's no greater sin than failing to trust Jesus. This is why Peter, when he was addressing the audience, all these Jews from all over the known world, that is why he chose to focus on their rejection of Jesus. 
That's why um, Jesus, after he said to his followers before he was crucified, in the verse I read to you, the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin. And then he goes on to say what? Because they do not believe in me. How many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life? I'm just curious. I'm just curious. Go ahead, raise your hand. I gotta see it. I wanna see. I'm curious. Okay. So there's a few. Well, The Purpose Driven Life is making a bit of a resurgence here in our church. Mary and her life group is going through the book with her life group girls. I know of individual, an individual discipling relationship that's happening in our church. They're going through this book. It's a book that Mary and I, when we first started discipling people, used quite a bit. I've always appreciated how Rick Warren closes chapter 3 of his book. Let me uh, read what he says. One day you will stand before God and he will do an audit of your life, a final exam before you enter eternity. The Bible says, remember, each of us will stand personally before the judgment seat of God. Yes, each of us will have to give a personal account. Now check this out. Fortunately, God wants us to pass the test, so he has given us the questions in advance. From the Bible, we can sur surmise that God will ask us two crucial questions. Here's the first one. What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? God won't ask about your religious background or doctrinal views, or you could throw in here your political views. The only thing that will matter is, did you accept what Jesus did for you, and did you learn to love and trust him? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's the second crucial question that God will ask of you when you stand before him? You'll have to get the book and read the book. I'm not going to tell you. But did you hear that first question? What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? The only thing will matter is, did you accept what Jesus did for you, and did you learn to love and trust him? Hmm. One commentator says, People do not go to hell because they smoke, drink, or curse, but because they reject faith in Christ. Look, we're all looking to something to save us. We all are. We may not use that term, but nonetheless, we are looking to something to be the source of our, our, our identity. We're looking to something to be the reason that we live, to give us purpose, to give us meaning, to prove that we matter, to make us feel secure, to ease or at least cancel out our failures, to heal us of the guilt and the shame and the securities that we're often plagued with. We're looking for a savior. And we're trusting in something or someone to be that savior for us. Now here is the problem. All other so-called saviors that we look to for salvation and life will ultimately destroy us and fail us. If you look to your spouse to be your savior, Guess what? You're going to be destroyed. You're going to destroy them. Because here's why. They can't love you in the way that you need to be loved. And so you're going to have expectations on them that they can never meet. 
It's going to destroy them. And it will destroy you in the process. We're dedicating kids, right, today. Kids are wonderful. But if you take your kid and you, you elevate that kid to God in your life, guess what? You will crush your kid and you'll be crushed in the process. You know why? Because your child cannot provide you with the love that you need. I'm involved in youth sports, right? And there's a kid on my oldest son's team, and he has a dad that how he performs in sports is the idol. This kid is being crushed under the weight of his father's expectations. And he's a really talented baseball player, but does he perform well? No. Because he knows if he doesn't, he's going to hear it from his dad. His dad is all about him becoming a major league baseball player. Will this dad grow, or will this child grow to love his father? Probably not. Not in the deepest sense. He's crushing his kid. I see this all the time in youth sports. Parents more concerned about the name on the back of the jersey than the, than the first kid's, you know, the kid's first name. Um, if you make your career your savior, where you're going to find identity and a sense of belonging and purpose and meaning and a, I'm worth something, when you have a great quarter in your job, you're going to feel great. But then when the next quarter rolls around and the sales plummet and the revenue's not coming in and people are criticizing your performance, you're going to be crushed. You're going to, you're going to be all over the place if you're looking to your career to be your savior. We could go on and on with things that we often look for salvation in. Beauty is another huge thing. Billions of dollars every year are spent on workout equipment, um, clothes, makeup. If you are looking to your outward appearance to be your savior, to show that you are actually something to prove your worth, what happens when things start to droop and say? It happens. It happens. You'll be crushed. Only Jesus is a Savior that can actually save. He can actually give you fulfillment and meaning and purpose in an identity that is unshakable. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And the ultimate sin is that we are rejecting Jesus as our Savior and we're looking to a substitute that will always leave us wanting. So, maybe some of you right now are being convicted by the Holy Spirit because that's what He does. Let's go to the second thing that He does. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. Uh, Peter's audience had such a skewed perspective on what righteousness was that they killed and crucified the only truly righteous person that has ever lived. That's how skewed their perspective was. Just like in Peter's day, we too have a skewed perspective on what it means to be righteous. In our mainstream culture, to be right in the world's eyes, it is to look a certain way, right? To be powerful, to be wealthy, to be influential, 
to be popular, to be ultra-talented, to be well-connected. Those are the people that we put up on a pedestal. Those are the people we want to be like. Those are the people we admire and heap honor on. We make celebrities of these people. What is true righteousness? How would you answer that question? What is true righteousness? Jesus showed us what true righteousness is. In fact, he was so righteous that Peter said that the grave could not hold him. Jesus was so righteous that the grave could not hold him. Why? Because the wages of sin is death, but the wages of a righteous life is eternal life. That's why the grave couldn't hold Jesus, because he was truly righteous. In John 16.10, the verse I read to you, it says that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of righteousness because I go to my Father. Jesus going to the Father in heaven in a position of ultimate authority over everything, everywhere, in heaven and on earth, was God saying he truly is the righteous one. One commentator puts it this way, for if his claim to be the Son of God, this is speaking of Jesus, for if Jesus' claim to be the Son of God, the Savior of the world, had been a lie, how should the Father, who is a jealous God, have raised such a blasphemer from the dead and exalted him to his right hand? But if he was the faithful and true witness, the Father's righteous servant, his elect, in whom his soul delighted, then was his departure to the Father and consequence disappearance from the view of men, but the fitting consummation, the august reward of all that he did here below. The seal of his mission, the glorification of the testimony which he bore on earth by the reception of its bearer to the Father's bosom. Wow. What did Jesus' righteousness consist of? Was Jesus good-looking? Isaiah tells us that there was nothing in his outward appearance that would attract him or attract you to him. He didn't look like me. So. <laughs> I did not say that in my first service. And Mary just put her head down and is red and is going like that. That is so not good to say. All right. What? Worse than what I was, was Jesus wealthy? Was Jesus wealthy? No, he died without a penny to his name. Was Jesus popular? I don't think being crucified is winning a popularity contest, right? Was, was he well-connected? No, the elites despised him. Was he powerful in the sense that he bossed many servants around? No, he had no servants, no employees. He died like a slave. He was absolutely everything that our culture looks down on, and yet he changed the course of human history. Why? Because he was righteous. What is righteousness? This is righteousness. It can be summed up with Jesus' two commandments here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Check this out. In every decision that Jesus made, every thought he had, every word he spoke, every motivation of his heart, 
In every action he undertook, Jesus perfectly loved God, the Father, and his neighbor as himself. That is true righteousness. That is why Jesus changed the world. The Holy Spirit convicts us that Jesus is truly righteous. You know what else that it convicts us of? That we are unrighteous. That's what the Spirit does. Look, the Holy Spirit enables us to see that we have not loved God supremely. That we have loved something else supremely in His place. That we've enthroned something else and dethroned Him. That God is not the center of our deepest affections and our deepest devotion. What's more is that in countless ways, we have failed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We are self-absorbed people. We are. It is few and far between when you actually have a conversation with a person that is not self-absorbed. How many times have you had a conversation with a person and they spend the whole time in that conversation just really focused on you? How often does that happen? We are consumed with our agenda. We are consumed with our plans, our dreams, our hurts, our pain, our health, our wealth, our comfort, our home, our family. We are self-absorbed. We are unrighteous. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of judgment. Uh, prior to this section that Peter addresses the crowd through in Acts 2, he talks about the prophet Joel and this great and awesome day of the Lord, and that's Judgment Day. And so he's talking about this. And what the Holy Spirit does is it convinces a person that Judgment Day is real, that Jesus is going to return. And every person that has ever lived will be judged according to how they lived on earth. Jesus said in John 16, 11, that... The Holy Spirit convinces the world of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now how, stay with me here, because how does the judgment of the ruler of this world help uh, the Holy Spirit convict people of judgment day? How does that work? But you know what Jesus did when he was crucified? He judged Satan and his agents. How he did that is he stripped Satan of his power. What's Satan's power? It's unforgiven sin that keeps us under his enslaving power. That's what holds us in his kingdom of darkness and doesn't allow us to get to God's kingdom of light. But when Jesus died, the only righteous one died. He wasn't dying for himself. Because he didn't deserve to die. He was dying for us. He was taking our sin upon himself so that we could experience forgiveness and be free from the grip of the enemy. So that we could go from being under the ruling power of the enemy to being under the ruling power of the king and his kingdom of light. The true king. And so the Holy Spirit uh, convinces us if Jesus disarms Satan on the cross, guess what we can count on? That when he returns, he will finally and decisively defeat Satan. And whoever chooses to willfully remain 
on the enemy's side. So, if you're here today, the Holy Spirit may be doing this to you, really convincing you that you're sinful. Right? It may be really convincing you that uh, the greatest sin is to reject Jesus as Savior, that you've been looking to something else to be your Savior. It may be convincing you that only Jesus was truly righteous and you are unrighteous. And it may be fully convincing you that there is judgment to come. So what must you do? Now that I've made us all feel horrible, maybe inside the Holy Spirit is prompting you to ask the question that the audience in Peter's day when he preached that first sermon that started the church, what did they ask in Acts 2, 38 and 39? Then Peter said to them, when they asked, well, no, back up, they asked right before that, what should they do? Because the Holy Spirit was convicting them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is what Peter said. This, and if you're asking this question, it's the same answer that Peter gave 2,000 years ago. It's the same answer today. It is this, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. What does it mean to, re to repent? It means this. Repentance is a change of direction in a person's life rather than simply a mental change of attitude or feeling of remorse. To put it another way, it is to say, I'm done living life as though uh, something else is my Savior and Lord. And I'm turning to live in life to, as, you know, to living a life where Jesus is my Savior and Lord. That's what it means to repent. Or to use Rick Warren's words that I quoted to you. It means to accept what Jesus has done for you and to learn to love and trust him. What happens when you repent? Well, Peter tells us, God forgives all of your sins, past, present, and future. In the Holy Spirit that works to convict your heart of sin, righteousness, and judgment, comes to live inside of your heart and to empower you to live a righteous life. And when you repent, you are transferred immediately from the kingdom of darkness to God's kingdom of light. You know what I love about what Peter said when the crowd asked him, what should we do then? He didn't say, like, do these 20 things and then, like, God might accept you or clean yourself up and then maybe God will accept you. He just said, repent. Change the direction of your life. Live for Jesus. Have Him come live inside of you to empower you to do that. You know what I love about that? Anybody can repent. The rich can repent. The poor can repent. The well-connected can repent. The marginalized can repent. The young can repent. The old can repent. No matter what color your skin is, no matter what nation you're from, you can repent. Anybody 
can repent. I pray that if the Holy Spirit has convicted you on these things, that you would repent. Because there's a difference between, and you got to hear this, there's a difference between conviction and conversion. Conviction is simply, yes, the Holy Spirit is pointing these things out to you, making them real to your hearts. But guess what? You have a choice to make. Will you repent? When you repent, that's when you're converted. That's when you exit the kingdom of darkness and come in to the kingdom of light. Don't walk away convicted. Walk away converted. Guys, this is the most important message you can possibly hear. It is. It is. This is it. And guess what? God's a gentleman. He will not force this upon you. He will let you walk away. You have a choice to make. Choose life. Eternal. Um, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are and how you love us. Lord, thank you that uh, you created us uh, for relationship with you, that you created us, as Brandon said, as the pinnacle, the zenith of your creation, your creative works. Uh, we are made in your image, and our hearts are truly restless until they find their rest in you because you've wired us that way. And yet, Lord, though you love us so immensely, we have all turned away. We have all sought other things in your place. We have all sought salvation in things that cannot deliver, that end up destroying us and our relationships. We are unrighteous. And if we're going to stand on our own merit before you, we know that we can't pass judgment. We are, we're guilty. And yet we are so thankful, Jesus, that you lived the perfect life we couldn't but should have. And even though you deserved eternal life, you died in our place as our substitute to pay for all the ways that we've ignored you, God, and rebelled against you. Thank you for your great love and devotion to us. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray that if you have convicted anybody here, that they wouldn't walk out convicted but converted, that they would repent. And I also pray, Lord, that the kids that were dedicated today would come to know that they are so loved by you and yet so deeply flawed and broken that they need you as their Savior and that they would grow to understand that and repent and that they would give their life to you so that they can truly be satisfied, so that they can truly feel secure, so that they can truly feel significant. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.